A sit down with the next house speaker. Welcome to Grand Divisions. This is the week of July 29th. I'm Joel Ebert. And I'm Natalie Allison. All right, we're going to cut to a conversation that we had recently with House incoming House Speaker uh, Cameron Sexton, who is a Republican from Crossville. Uh, it's a wide-ranging interview, and then afterwards we'll analyze the news of the week and then also sit down with Elena Sauber, a Williamson County reporter who recently took a dive into issues related to former state senator Bill Ketron. Just days ago, the House Republican Caucus elected its nominee for speaker to take over from Glenn Cassida. They will reconvene August 23rd for a special session. But today we have with us Speaker Select Cameron Sexton. Thanks for coming on. Thank you all for having me. So the next few weeks are going to be, I don't know, a little bit awkward. There's going to be a uh, interim speaker. There's going to be um, Bill Dunn, who will sort of formally take over the speaker's duties uh, in in the interim. But right now you're working with him, and I imagine potentially Speaker Cassida on that transition. Can you tell us a little bit about what those first order of businesses are for the meantime? Yes. I mean, it's it's been a, a, a quick and long six days, if that makes sense. <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to uh, get everybody in a place with a lot of conversations going on, making sure that nothing drops through the cracks and um, as we continue to move forward and just trying to make sure we have everybody included and involved as as we move through because there's so many moving parts and you know what I like to say in the in the beginning what I the, the three things I think in the beginning the focus on for me is stability on policy and on consistency and with stability it, it goes back to doing the top to bottom review of the entire general assembly and making sure we have people in the right spots making sure that we we um, are moving in the right direction. The other thing is is also with the committee, um, looking at the committee, making sure that people are in the right spots to be successful um, and they have passion for it. And then, you know, maintain our focus as we move forward during this time. Don't lose focus. And if I'm doing my job right as a speaker or speaker nominee, then there should be a, a calm from the speaker's office, a quietness because everything's working effectively. If you don't hear a lot from the speaker, then things should be working well. And that's what we're hoping on policy. Um, you know, I don't look at speaker running the committees. That's the chairman. I think I said that in the speech that day. It's the chairman's job, and you have to have faith and trust in the chairman to do that. And consistency is, I think a lot of times, is if you're inconsistent, that limits your stability. So I think they go hand in hand. If you want stability, you need consistency because that's uh, what people expect, whether it's supporting members, whether it's fairness, as we continue to move forward. You talked about uh, almost a, a tinge of the bill done. I want to return the speaker's office mm -hmm. to boringness in a way. Um, one of the issues that kind of came up as we have been reporting on House Speaker Glenn Cassida has just been an issue of transparency, right? We've re requested a lot of records um, related to how he held his office. Sometimes there was some slow walking in that. So as we look forward to, uh, you know, the speakership under under your uh, time, what would you do in terms of transparency? Do you, you know, do you plan on having sort of an open? Uh, I mean, this is kind of a, you know, of course answer, but right. what what do you say about transparency? No, I mean, I think it's important, right? I think it's important in the aspect of if people request information to be able to give them the information. You know, I understand sometimes it may, may take longer or, or a certain 
certain length of time. I, you know, even when people do freedom of information, I think you're given 30 days to at least uh, make sure you can get everything. So staying within the bounds of the law, um, but, uh, you know, hopefully um, things aren't being done where you need transparency. Hopefully you already have it and you don't have to request it. That's what I'd like to say. So sort of touching on the idea of, of how things were run uh, while Casted was Speaker, um, the last couple months of the fallout of, of scandal and whatnot have been pretty tumultuous. And, you know, there was a lot of questions about what is next. And, and before you guys had that caucus meeting um, in May, there was questions of, will he continue as Speaker? When did you start having doubts about his ability to, to continue leading? Well, you know, I mean, my job as caucus chairman before uh, this last election was to listen to the caucus and move the caucus in the direction that they wanted to move. And so uh, I had to stay neutral throughout the whole process because if I didn't, then I would have to recuse myself of the role that I was supposed to play, which was to have the caucus come together, have a meeting to see if there was confidence or not confidence. So, you know, what I what I would say is 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 based on all the information, the caucus made the the decision, the right decision, and and we have moved forward from that. But you know, in my role is is to be impartial, and and so I can get the caucus because if if I'm not impartial, then I won't be able to listen and hear what they're saying. It's going to be kind of guarded when they talk to me. So I had to make sure I maintained that independence. As you were running for for speaker, did you have anybody come up to you and say, you know, uh, I didn't like the way you you kind of went from, again, leading the uh, discussion on the no confidence to now all of a sudden jumping in the race? Did that, Was that a concern at all among any members? No, I don't think it was a concern. I never heard that. You know, I think most people felt like I handled the meeting and, and handled Glenn fairly and, and was consistent. And even when I was health chairman in the past, that I always try to run the committee fair and giving everybody their opportunity to speak or not speak or whatever they do. And I think when, when people feel like that you're fair and you're consistent and they know what to affect, a lot of times that brings calm even if you disagree at least you know it's you're, you're not going to get sidestepped or, or something's going to happen right so I think that's part of being a leader going back and looking at uh, parts of this session in hindsight let's talk about the the day of the ESA floor vote for a minute so obviously you were against that bill um, you know I, I, you weren't super vocal about that but you right. you didn't support that bill uh, what unfolded that day was I mean pretty pretty noteworthy that wasn't something that you see very often um, as speaker, what would you do in a situation like that where, you know, you are trying to push this, this administration bill, there's a tie, would, would you have kept the vote boards open that long? Would you have gathered for a, a porch caucus meeting and called members out there to pressure them? How, how would you handle something like that as speaker? Well, hopefully um, that process where it worked itself out in committee system, right? Usually when you have a bill that gets to the floor and it's that close, um, then the committee system didn't function properly. Hopefully if I set up the committee system appropriately, and I think Glenn did set up the committee structure, and I think it was successful in helping the House lead. I really do that. But I also think if I get back to where I trust my committees and my chairman to do their job, it could have been very different on the backside, whether it passed with more votes or maybe never made it to the House floor. I think it would have been potentially um, less dramatic if it got to the House floor, if the if the committee system was truly functioning the way it was. So, but as things come in, it, I would do it more like Speaker Harwell, which is you put it up on the board, and after a little bit, you call the vote, and what happens happens, right? And at the worst case, it would have been forty nine, forty nine, and would have gone back to calendar and rules, and they could have brought it back. Um, 
obviously you, you know, we mentioned uh, you weren't a supporter of vouchers, but you faced a, a, an early question about this in your first avail uh, after the caucus vote. What do you plan on in the future? Do you have any support? Do you see any support for undoing the legislation? Uh, how do you work with an administration that clearly wants this policy issue where you disagree with them on it? Well, I mean, my job is to represent the House of Representatives and the General Assembly on that side um, and really have conversations about where the House body is with the governor. And, um, and you know, there's three separate branches of government for a reason, and the House is one part of a half a section of it, right? And so I think it would be more of, of, of having those conversations and having our chairman be more involved in the front, not in the back, um, and having them be more involved with the administration and working it out and, and seeing if that's the direction to go um, as you move forward. You know, whether or not someone's for it or against it shouldn't be the reason at the end of the day you don't have a relationship with them. And we can all agree to disagree and, and work when we can, but don't hold it against somebody when they can't. It looks like the administration wants to sort of accelerate the introduction of this or the beginning of the program. Uh, do you have any concerns about that? I mean, I do. I don't. I don't think it needs to be accelerated at this point. Um, you know, we'll we'll have those conversations as we go. And I think f- hearing from the members, I think the members are lockstep in that as well. I think they, in, in your position in the house, okay. yeah, in the house. I can't speak for the Senate, but sure. in the house, I think the house is. Um, when I was running around, that was one of the questions um, when I was talking to members all across the state about um, following the same timeline that they thought they were going to be able to follow. So, would you say it? It is not out of the question for their to somehow next year, whatever, be legislation that would attempt to roll this back somewhat? or There'll be nothing coming from the Speaker's office, if that's what you're asking. Each individual member um, can file whatever they want to. So, you know, I can't, I'm not going to stop anybody from filing anything. So there could be. But I also think that from what I'm hearing, there could be some court challenges to the bill that was passed. So that would be the other mm-hmm. aspect of, of, of that to consider as well. You, um, you've, you've spoken to this since you told us recently that you you essentially aren't in favor of the the body at least during the special session voting on an expulsion for David Byrd that um that you don't think that's what caucus members want and what his constituents want either um so first did you want to respond to that at all and say do you think that this is something that should happen during session or you still just feel like expulsion isn't the way to go with him well I mean I think um First of all is, you know, when he ran for re-election last year, it's only been 12, less than 12 months ago that he won re-election, is all of this was debated. And his district didn't put up a Republican in the primary against him. There was a general election um, where all this information was given to everybody in the district, hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on both sides of drilling down into their people. And his district still decided to return him. And they're the ones who... Um, are more closely associated with the alleged incident or not, right? More so than what we are because we're basing ours on what they're telling us to a certain degree. So I think his district made that decision. And I think at this point, it's very hard to go back and overdo um, a, a district's vote. I think that's between David and I think it's between his family and I think it's between his district on how they like to proceed. And, and I think taking away that ability from the voters without due process as well could be a very um, – is, is a thing you need to be very cautious of. So what can you do? Is there anything that can be done when, as Speaker, you are, you're faced with, you know, um, having a sitting member with allegations of child molestation? Is, 
Is there anything to do about that? Well, I mean, a lot depends on when the allegations were and where, what happened, if there was ever any charges brought. So there's more to it than just allegations, obviously. So, I mean, I think you have to look at the entire picture and figure out, if is that somewhere for the General Assembly to be in the process of, or is that something into the law enforcement side that needs to be part of, or is that um, the district back home that needs to be more part of that? I think it's 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 a question that needs to be answered on a case-by-case basis. I, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, did you notice this weekend a lot of hashtags related to your name? Uh, and do you have any, any thoughts about, you know, uh, people taking to social media to to really offer their perspectives on this. No, I mean, I mean that's what makes us a great country, right? I mean, everybody has the freedom to say what they like to say, and and the nice thing is, is is um, people are saying it. They're not hiding behind fake accounts or anything of that nature. So it, it, I don't have a problem when someone voices their concern, and if I make a decision that they don't like, it happens at home, it happens wherever at my business at the work. Is it's okay, right? We can agree to disagree. And but I appreciate them, um, you know, saying how they feel. I mean, that's an important part of the process. Getting some shade from the speaker select on the anonymous Twitter accounts out there. <laughs> um, you have uh, talked about some major or, or minor tinkering to the committee system, perhaps, or or at least uh, personnel people on 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 those committees or serving as chairmanship. Do you you know? Can you give us an early indication? Are you are you looking at one uh, committee in particular? Or are you thinking uh, one lawmaker may not fit in this, or do you not want to tip your hand yet? Because uh, technically, you've got a, a couple more weeks still. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, we're in the process of where we're still talking. I mean, like I said, we're still six days in. We're trying to get stability and consistency and, and really talk to members, trying to think things through, be very deliberate and focused on how we want to do that. And, you know, the, the drying part is, is as we want to talk about unity and how we unite and how we move forward, a lot of that comes to not being a speaker who arbitrarily says you can't be on a committee which may be your passion simply because you may or may not have voted for me, Mm -hmm. right? And so in order to really unite again, I think we need a a different perspective. I'm not saying that Glenn or Beth or anybody else did that. I'm just saying from me being a fresh perspective is I want to make sure that if we're going to be successful in Tennessee, we need to put the members, and I say members, general members, in the spots to where they feel like they have passion and can be successful, and that will benefit the state of Tennessee. One of the interesting things was for Speaker Cassidy to um, add a couple of new committees and even appoint two Democrats uh, as chairman. Do you have any plans on either taking back some of those committees he added or uh, taking away those positions from the Democrats for right now? At, at this point, you know, I'm not – I don't plan on – changing the, the committee structure. Um, I really think I need some more data. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to get more data on how many bills were in a committee. And, you know, if there's a bill that had, if there's a committee that had 10 bills at the end, you're talking about efficiency, members are blocking off an hour of their time. If there's only 10 bills, does it really make sense to have that committee? Mm-hmm. We don't have the data yet. And so that's part of the process we're trying to go through to make sure that we're as efficient as we can be. Um, and, 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 because at the end, we just we want people. You only have so much time, right? There's only so many hours in a day. We want to make sure we maximize that for every single member there. In addition to potentially making changes to the committee system, as speaker, you you kind of get to pick your staff too, and I think that's another question going around. Is it's it's not uncommon for a new speaker to to do that to sort of come in and bring his or her own uh, new group of staff members. What what do you have plans to do in? In that case, do you should we expect to see you know the, the speaker's office cleaned out and uh, Cameron Sexton's picks brought in? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's like when I was first elected. When I was first elected, I came up here and I knew absolutely nothing about whatever happened on a day-to-day basis. You have an idea and then you're 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 kind of open. So the first thing I know is is I need to have someone in there who understands what the day-to-day operations are and what's expected, what's needed. The last thing we want is to have anything drop through the cracks and, and have missteps because as we're trying to bring back stability and consistency, we don't need missteps. And so, you know, the first thing is the chief of staff is probably your most important job and, and finding that person who has that ability to be consistent and help us move forward, who has the right demeanor and that member's respect is the first thing that we need to make sure we get right. And you, have you made a decision on that yet? I think my decision has been to keep Scott Gilmer in that spot. He's served under two um, uh, speakers. Uh, the members uh, believe he's done a good job, and I think he brings the right demeanor, and I think he has the, the, the ability to help us navigate and have a very smooth transition that will help us succeed. And, and beyond you retaining Scott, we can likely expect to see other changes made. There'll be, I mean, there'll be other changes made in the office. Yes. I mean, there will be. And, you know, but that, that comes with, you know, the way it is when I came into the caucus chairman office, there was changes there as well, you know? And, and so that's just an, an expected situation, no matter where you are. I wanted to turn to the, the issue of healthcare. Um, you know, you served as uh, the, the chairman of that committee for a while. And you also led um, uh, Speaker Harwell's three-star healthy um, uh, task force, essentially, which for those that may not remember, was the idea of creating, uh, what was it? Uh, 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 the care recommendations. plan? Uh, no, no, the, the 2016. Um, oh, the, you're talking about three-star, the three white star, paper? Yes, uh, which was essentially coming up with recommendations on how to do a pilot program mm-hmm. for expansion to a limited population, starting with uh, veterans and then moving to people 138 percent below the poverty line. Uh, you have this this interest and this knowledge of, of health care. Uh, how will you u- use that as speaker? You know, do you have uh, a, a staunch opposition to any form of Medicaid expansion uh, like other people have had in the state? Or do you see kind of rekindling that idea of maybe coming up with some kind of task force again? Well, I mean, I think the three-star was an important process because one of the things that I hope to do a speaker, which we did on that, which is when you go around and you meet with people on a certain issue, don't go in with a decision already being made on what you think needs to happen. You need to have the ability to be able to listen, to hear, to think, because what will happen, and especially in that meeting is we went to, I think, five cities across, one issue kept coming to the top no matter where we went, which was disability, Mm -hmm. right, and mental health and substance abuse and not being adequately funded, not adequately insured, and and so th- and so that led us to where we passed this year, Katie Beckett, and we've tried to do some other stuff as far as uh, drug courts and other things. But I think that's all stemmed from that listening tour, and hopefully we can go down that road again. You know, in my aspect of speaker, you know, I'll still be heavily involved in in hopefully working with the chairs of health and insurance, not so much guiding them or directing them. Um, but really helping to talk to the administration and to the governor about things that we like to see, things we like to do. And I think it's a, a great point because this year the governor, it's my understanding, is he's going to have a lot of health initiatives. And so being at least being right now this hopefully the speaker nominee now and hopefully the speaker in, in three weeks will put us in a position to have those conversations with the administration as they're preparing to delve into the healthcare. One of the issues that just won't go away is rural hospital closures. Uh, you talk to Democrats, you talk to some advocates, and they say it's because the state hasn't expanded Medicaid. Uh, what say you? 
I don't think that's accurate. I mean, I understand, you know, it, it, their point of view. I do. I think it's a, it's a much bigger picture than just whether or not you did expansion or not. I think part of it is um, the Medicare wage index is a big concern. When you talk to hospitals, um, Tennessee gets the one of the lowest Medicare rate reimbursements than other states, which dramatically impacts the amount of funding that they have, and that makes up the bulk of the population that we have in the state of Tennessee. And if we were on parity with other states, if you asked hospitals would they rather have Medicare parity or expansion, they're going to take Medicare parity every time. So that tells you that's the top issue, right? The other thing is with rural hospitals is it's a changing marketplace, and we've never really adapted our healthcare into the to the changing model. And being able to support a hospital with the reimbursement rates as of today, whether you had expansion or not, in a town population of thirty or forty thousand is really difficult. Especially with another hospital that's the next county over that has a population of thirty or forty thousand. So what you've seen is a consolidation of hospitals. And so the hospital may close for certain types of services, but it does stay for a diagnostic center, imaging, so it is staying open for other things. So I think it's a more complex thing than just saying it was expansion. And let's let's start to wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you about how you got started in politics. So some people know you, from what I understand, you worked on Randy McNally's, one mm-hmm. of his campaigns back in 92? 94. 94, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are giving you more credit than I guess for starting even <laughs> earlier. Um, you worked for on Randy McNally's campaign. Tell me about how you got involved in that and what your job was on that campaign. And was that your first job in politics? It, it was, it was, it was. So um, I knew I knew Randy for a while, and, and so I was graduating college at UT. And I graduated in the summer um, under the, the five-year plan, five-year plus is what I call it. Sure. And, which included summer. <laughs> and, and so it does, it does. I changed majors, that's what happened. Um, but anyway, so... You know, I was looking for something to do, and he had a race that November. It was right after redistricting, and that's if you remember the time. That's when Don Sunquist was on the ticket, Bill Friss, Fred Thompson. It was quite the time to to be there, and so it was just me and Randy. He hired me. Uh, he called me the campaign manager as by de facto because I was the sign guy, I was the driver, I was. But you were the only. I was one everything, for him? right? Oh, I was wow. the only one working for. How him. did he find you? Um, we knew each other, and my dad knew Randy from 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 business, and so. My dad just asked Randy if he, if he needed help, and he's like, "Of course, right?" I'm, How I much was, were you getting paid? I have no idea. It wasn't <laughs> much, and um, but you know, I had this little truck, and I drive around. And this was back during the days. Now you have corrugated signs and zip ties. Back then, you had um, uh, uh, four by eight sheets of wood, and the four by eight signs were paper, and you had to staple gun them. And so, like, literally half my day was going around because the wind would rip that paper and was going <laughs> oh, back wow. to all the signs and restapling them where the wind. But, you know, the thing I learned from that is is Randy's always been a mentor. He really has. And I've known him for a long time. And and so the other night when, when I won, I, I asked him, I said, you know, if you had thought back to 1994 when I was a 25, 26-year-old guy and I was helping you, you ever thought, I never thought, but could you imagine us serving as speakers together and just having that ability? And, you know, wow. It's nice. What did he say? Well, you know, as Randy was very sweet and nice and short, but, you know, he's like, yeah, that, you know, who would have thought, right? <laughs> I mean, who would have thought that you fast forward two and a half decades and we would have this opportunity to serve together? You know, when I was first elected in 210, it was the same conversations. Like, I couldn't believe I was able to serve, even though he was in the Senate, mm-hmm. just just being here. And, and, and you know, I also worked for other people. Um, you know, I, I helped Jamie Haygood when she was running. And, and so, you know, it's been... 
that started me, and I, I guess I had the right mentor that got me hooked in politics with Randy. Last question for you. What is your day job, and are you going to continue it? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in banking. Um, okay. I was in healthcare before that. I'm in banking, and so that will continue. Um, you know, I'm in business development, so um, that allows me to bring in, to put two people together, the bank and someone who's wanting to borrow money. And, and so I'm going to continue in that role as the best I can. I've already talked to my employer, but... You know, it's it's, an, it's a fascinating world banking is, and um, and so I've learned a lot in that as I have throughout most of the other jobs I've had. We appreciate you coming on. Um, I soon to be Speaker Sexton. Uh, as a reminder, the House Republican Caucus is obligated to vote for you. Um, so more than likely, Cameron Sexton will take over as Speaker in just a few weeks. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, and hopefully, we'll have unity in that vote. We have with us again this week on the podcast, Elena Sauber. She is one of our Williamson County reporters and once again is covering a story outside of Williamson County that a lot of people are interested in. Elena has been writing about former state senator, current Rutherford County Mayor Bill Ketron, and his daughter, Kelsey Ketron. They both are finding themselves involved in an investigation right now over uh, their insurance company, uh, mostly pertaining to Kelsey's alleged negligence or actual uh, criminal activity here involving accepting money from people whose insurance policies she didn't actually take out. Yeah, that's kind of the gist of what we're talking about here. Um, it's it's at the point now where the Murfreesboro Police Department uh, does have an ongoing criminal investigation, specifically into Universal International Insurance Agency uh, and Kelsey Ketron. And uh, this really all kind of revolves around allegations from at least two different individuals who say that they paid Kelsey Ketron um, in a, a fee to open up um, home insurance policies for them and that she took the money and then never actually opened uh, the insurance policies. Um, you've got that is kind of compounded with the fact that Kelsey Ketron's license to practice insurance actually expired in August 2016. So that leads us to believe that she's actually been practicing uh, as an insurance agent without having um, a valid license in Tennessee for going on three years now. And she is, correct me if I'm wrong, she was the vice president and CFO of this insurance company? That's correct. My my understanding is that she pretty much headed up the day-to-day -day operations. Without a license to practice insurance. Correct. Okay. So this kind of um, culminated in, in, in a search warrant being executed at her home and at the business with the Secret Service taking part in this? Can you talk a little bit about what happened there and, yeah, that's and where things stand? That's what really struck me as uh, as I kind of pursued this story. Um, it's not, it, to me, it doesn't seem like an everyday occurrence that the Secret Service just sort of helps out with a local police department on something as simple as a search warrant in connection to what may or may not have been intentional fraud. Um, but what I was able to find out was that the Murfreesboro Police Department uh, told me that they have a very good relationship with the Secret Service. They work pretty closely together um, when MPD requests it. And in this case, they asked that the Secret Service provide some assistance specifically in executing these search warrants that were executed at the the insurance agency's office as well as at Kelsey Ketron's home. And they found some pretty interesting things. Um, we were able to get a copy of the search warrant and its findings last week. And there were a few dozen different items and documents that were seized from those two locations, most, most of which were returned. Um, but if you read my story, it kind of starts out with 
what I thought was sort of an interesting finding at Kelsey Ketron's home, they went into her kitchen and sitting on the kitchen table was the insurance file for one of the families that is actively suing the Ketrins in court right now for never opening the policy that they paid them to open. And of course, the Secret Service's involvement is is a federal issue, but uh, that seemingly relates to potential wire fraud, mail fraud. That's what the Secret Service looks into, um, uh, financial frauds of some sort. Um, uh, You know, this has really been interesting, I think, from from looking at the reaction uh, from some of the Republicans that we talk to every day. Um, Some of them have been, you know, just quietly behind the scenes saying, yeah, this is not good. This is not a a good situation for uh, Bill Ketron, even though he wasn't the subject uh, per se of at least the home search. Uh, overall, though, I mean, this is certainly uh, a, a concerning investigation. It's not every day that the federal uh, government is involved in searching uh, in a in you know a Republican uh, uh, you know politicians. Um, insurance company. No, not at all. And, you know, I, I was, I did speak with, um, an official with the secret services, Nashville field office, and they, they do work pretty regularly on ongoing investigations that they keep under the radar. Um, but you know, the, um, agency supervisor that I spoke with said, at least in his memory, this was the first time that they had ever helped out with an ongoing investigation into sitting public officials. And I think that is kind of what stands out here. And okay. Kelsey Ketron has stepped down from her uh, elected position on the, the Republican State Party's executive committee. Um, and and it does seem like her, her father is, is still standing by her, supporting her. She's taken a leave of absence from the company, but he did release a statement essentially, you know, saying she had done a great job. Um, in that capacity. Of course, the uh, this is one side of the issue. There is another uh, connection that both Kelsey and um, um, former Senator Bill Ketron have, and that's related to uh, campaign finance issues. Kelsey, I've been to numerous meetings where uh, both uh, Kelsey Ketron and Bill Ketron have been brought up by uh, campaign finance officials. You didn't have any of that initial uh, reporting or in your latest story, but uh, that is something that is still ongoing, as I understand it. It is. So they're facing um, around $60,000 in civil penalties um, by the the board of of, um, the Registry the, of Election Finance. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so the Registry of Election Finance is, um, yes, uh, penalizing them into the tune of about $60,000. That's all for late campaign finance filings. Um, again, what kind of brings this father-daughter connection uh, to the forefront is that Kelsey Ketron is Bill Ketron's campaign finance treasurer. Hmm. So she would have been responsible for making sure that those campaign finance reports were filed on time. Likely at the same time that all these issues are kind of ongoing with the insurance company as well. That's right. Elena, thanks for coming on. Uh, As always, we will continue to look for your next stories on this. I know a lot of people, uh, especially inside politics, are interested in seeing what happens with this, even if they're not openly discussing it. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for catching us up. Yeah, thank you. And for this week's Notebook Dump, we have some new developments in the 2020 Tennessee U.S. Senate race. Josh Gap, he is a doctor based in Knoxville, uh, has joined the list of Republicans who are saying they're considering running for Senate or are running for Senate. He says he is indeed going to run for that seat. Um, Not 
particularly well-known at this point. He he said in his announcement, this year cancer will kill nearly 10 million people. Based on my upbringing and my training, I can tell you political correctness has become a cancer on our system. And in other news, current Congressman David Kustoff has taken his name out of the running. He was speculated to potentially be considering running for uh, U.S. Senate, but has said he has more work to do in the U.S. House of Representatives. Last week, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals dismissed a lawsuit that Tennessee had filed against the federal government over refugee resettlement. The issue had been one that is longstanding, dates back to 2016, when the legislature passed a resolution ordering the state to sue the federal government over the issue. Over time, it has gone its way through uh, federal court, but now the Sixth Circuit has decided that it agreed with a lower court and dismissed the case. It is unclear whether the state will uh, appeal the the. It is unclear whether the state will appeal the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. And now that Cameron Sexton is set to become the next Speaker of the House, uh, the caucus has to replace his current position, which is Republican caucus chairman for the House. Two representatives have already indicated their plans to run for that position, uh, the first of which was Representative Jeremy Faison, followed by Representative Michael Curcio. The House Republicans will meet for a caucus election the night before the special session, so that'll be on August 22nd, to vote for Cameron's successor. That's it for Grand Divisions this week. You can find us, as always, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcast. Please continue to rate us. It really helps us uh, continue this podcast. We had a recent idea uh, that we would like you to send us any Tennessee-related political jingles. Natalie had someone recently reach out to her and give her an interesting one that we will be sharing uh, in a, yeah, a future episode. Yeah, get excited. We're not going to tell you what it is. Yeah, but please do send us any political you know, campaign related jingles, uh, whether it be uh, governor, uh, local uh, mayoral candidate, city council, uh, Congress, etc. And we will at some point share those in future episodes. Uh, As always, thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by John Garcia and Erica Whitney. Uh, We'll see you next week. I'm Joel Eber. And I'm Natalie Allison. 